Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. Today we talk to Dr. Natalie Boyero from San Jose State University and Dr. C.J. Pascoe at Colorado College about their co-authored article, Pro-Anorexia Communities and Online Interaction, Bringing the Pro-Ana Body Online, which was published in the most recent issue of Body and Society. We discuss what a pro-anorexia community is, how members establish authenticity within the online groups, and the importance of moving beyond the individual and understanding anorexia. Thank you both for joining us on the podcast. Perhaps to start, you can each introduce yourselves so the listeners will recognize your voices when you speak. Okay, I'm Natalie Boero. (laughs) And I'm CJ Pascoe. Well, thank you again for joining us. And we asked you here to talk about your article, Pro-Anorexia Communities and Online Interaction, Bringing the Pro-Ana Body Online, which was recently published in Body and Society. Uh, and I have to say, it was an excellent article. I enjoyed reading it from beginning to end. Oh, thanks. So first to start, I was hoping you could provide just a little bit of background information about the pro-anorexia communities. Um, I wasn't familiar with them before I read this, and I'm guessing a lot of listeners are not. Nats, you want to take it? Um, sure. Uh, pro-anorexia communities in general are, um, you know, ge- in general, they occur online. They're pretty much an online phenomenon. And they've, they've migrated from being email lists to individual websites to discussion groups. And they've, um, you know, gone through the various cycles of social networks, just like, you know, different social networking, just like everything else has. But in general, there's some sort of group, interactive group, um, where members sort of coalesce around an identity as being pro-anorexic, right? So that they identify as being eating disordered, having an eating disorder, but they generally see it as more of a lifestyle. They are generally not involved in any sort of treatment. Many of them have never undergone any sort of treatment. And they're looking sort of for, for mutual support in crafting a pro-anorexia lifestyle and building a community. Okay. Do you know how many communities like this exist, or is there any estimate for the numbers of groups like this? You know what? We <clears throat> have tried to uh, look into that, and they, A, change so quickly, sort of pop up and disappear mm-hmm. so quickly, and they migrate from site to site so quickly that it's next to impossible to get uh, an accurate count. Um, but if you type in you know, pro-anorexia to any sort of Google search, um, you will find hundreds, if not thousands, of, of sites wow. uh, that, that focus on this sort of lifestyle. Oh, okay. And I guess people are also using an alias, so it would be very difficult to track who's in multiple sites and things like that, right? Oh, absolutely. To track them across sites is incredibly difficult. Okay. We were able to track them within the site that we looked at through multiple discussion groups, but outside of that, it's really difficult. And it's also difficult because because there's been such a a negative response to these sites, they often um, are sort of thinly veiled as... Um, eating disorder support groups or things like that that might ne- necessarily appear pro-ana on the surface. Mm-hmm. When you say there's been negative reactions, um, who is that necessarily coming from? It comes from politicians, parents, um, sufferers of eating disorders. For instance, in France, there have been a lot of discussions about getting laws passed that 
uh, make it illegal to encourage extreme weight loss in online communities. Okay. Um, yeah, so in the United States, we haven't seen um, laws passed per se, but for instance, uh, Tumblr just came out uh, with a statement about um, wanting to, uh, their goal of taking down uh, these sorts of uh, pro-eating disorder uh, websites um, or microblogs on, on their site. Um, and so you see, you see online service providers um, also trying to sort of uh, get rid of, of these sites, even if it's not technically against the law. Here. Okay. Yeah. And this has been going on for, you know, I mean, I think one of the quotes or one of the articles that we cite in the Body and Society piece talks about Yahoo being pressured to take down these sites, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Um, so it's been going on for a while. And, and interestingly, it's, it's also um, feminists who have very much had a negative response to these sites. Okay. Well, that actually brings me to uh, my next questions. So how have these groups been treated by both the media and by academics? I mean, I think over, overwhelmingly the, the media has sort of whipped up a bit of a moral panic around these. And I, I don't mean to sound glib here. Eating disorders are a serious issue, but um, they've, they've sort of taken the most sensational aspects of these, these sites or these groups or communities and have sort of put them out there as sort of the, you know, ground zero for how people develop eating disorders these days. And so there's been a very sensational, uh, reaction that has, um, focused largely on, um, the supposed desire of um, veteran members wanting to recruit members into these groups as these being breeding grounds for anorexia and bulimia and other eating disorders. And so, um, you know, and really sort of painting these places as very predatory. Mm -hmm. Um, but in general, I, I guess I would use the term moral panic and really, but really also very decontextualized moral panic, which I guess is probably part of the definition of a moral panic, but, um, they've really they've they've largely been taken out of context, and the more sensational aspects have been focused on. Okay, how have they been treated by academics? Is it is it pretty much going along the same lines as the media, or have people really talked much about this? You know, they actually haven't talked a lot about this, and and I'd say you you see sort of two. Um, groups uh, or two types of, of research on on these sites right the first type of research is sort of the um, the positivist research so uh, primarily coming from psychology so what types of um, people are drawn to these sites what are the effects of these sites right um, do do these sites actually cause people to engage in eating disorder practices um, and and which which types of people with eating disorders are likely to go on these sites. Uh, so that's one one group, um, primarily from psychology, and then the other group, which is primarily from from media studies, um, less looking at sort of causes and effects of these sites, and um, is more interested in sort of how these sites function as okay. online communities, right? Like like other online communities, sort of placing this these types of sites. Uh, in the context of other online communities. Um, and I think what, what we try to do in this piece is to sort of push back a, a, against the sort of moral panic frame um, and actually give a more nuanced analysis about what is going on on these sites. And, and I think the length of time that we spent, um, you know, a year and a half looking at these sites, uh, really was able to, to sort of give us a chance to see the nuances on these sites rather than sort of just seeing what, what 
the media sees at yeah. first blush. I really appreciated that when I was reading it, and I, I'm guilty of having that same reaction of when I, yeah. So are we. I mean, when, you, when you see those <laughs> words, pro-anorexia community, it's difficult not to have that visceral uh, kind of knee-jerk reaction that this is an awful thing that must be stopped. Um, so I appreciate you taking the effort to first understand how the community works and not just follow well, that route. Well, I think route. one of the things that maybe Natalie can talk a little bit more about is that, um, you know, the, our first, we we are absolutely guilty of looking at these sites and thinking, oh my goodness, this is horrific, this is awful. And, and certainly, you know, we don't want anybody to starve to death. But I think uh, one of the things that, that Natalie points out, given her other body of research on, on the construction of obesity, is the the way in which the demonization of these sites is linked to um, contemporary discourses about obesity. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that, Natalie. Well, I just think, you know, um, then in a certain way, we are, you know, well, let me go back and say that, you know, like CJ said at first, we were also sort of, and are horrified by what yeah. goes on on these sites. And um, it did take us over time to real, a lot of time, in fact, and I think if we had, rushed and tried to get an article out as fast as possible, we would have been guilty of some of the things the mainstream media is guilty of in terms of not really seeing this in context. And I think that one of the things that being so familiar with this, what the conversations and the images and the ideas posted on these sites over time, you know, sort of getting past the initial shock value, is to really see how much a lot of the discussion mirrors more mainstream ideas about weight and weight loss and obesity, and that to a certain extent, um, to understand the moral panic around pro-anorexia groups outside of the moral panic around obesity would be really sort of a, a missed opportunity because, you know, if you look on these sites, once you get past sort of the more extreme examples, what they're telling each other to do are exactly what we're telling fat people to do, right? Um, that they're sort of what we see as problematic in these communities, you know, cut and pasted into a Weight Watchers website, and it's seen as legitimate practice around legitimate yeah. weight loss. So maybe we could take a step back and talk a bit more about how you uh, went about researching these groups. Um, and one of the things that impressed me was just the amount of time you spent and the amount of data that you were able to collect or access. So could you talk a bit about the approach that you used? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, we At the time we were doing this research, uh, MySpace was uh, the most popular um, social network site, and so we, we chose to research MySpace. Um, now, obviously, Facebook is overtaking MySpace. Um, uh, but we would argue that the functions are relatively similar, even if you're on a different type of social yeah. network site, um, the functions of, of these groups. Um, and so we searched for keywords, Anna, Mia, and Enos. Is that right, Matt? Yeah. Okay. And then we picked the um, most populous public groups. There were private groups that you had to uh, uh, sort of sign up to be a part of, but we didn't want to... Um, uh, sort of gather information that wasn't necessarily publicly accessible, but uh, I, I believe the vast majority of the groups. Okay, were and was public. that more for just ethical concerns about taking advantage of groups, or absolutely, absolutely. We we didn't want to. If people had some sort of expectation of privacy, we didn't want to yeah. infringe on that expectation of privacy. Um, and so then, <laughs> it's actually sort of complex. Um, 
to capture the data that isn't on the, in these online spaces. What we had to do was uh, sort of capture every single web page and then have um, then have the text on all of those web pages oh, wow. transcribed. <laughs> yeah, so we could actually analyze it. Um, uh, it disappear yeah. so quickly, you can't them being there. Yeah, and all of these groups are gone now. You can't find them. MySpace okay. take them all down. Yeah, and they could try to disguise themselves. Absolutely, and some of these did. I mean, one of the things that, that Natalie and I noticed was, you know, when you sign on to, when you look at the sort of front pages of these groups, some of them will say, you know, in sentences that are right next to each other, we are in no way encouraging eating disorders, but we are pro-anemia, right? Um, so they talk out of both sides of their mouths uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is to escape <clears throat> detection. Um, and so, yes, we had it all, uh, we got all the web pages transcribed. We, we sort of took all the pictures off the pages. Um, and then the two of us each took half uh, of the data and um, coded it. And then we, we switched to sort of ensure, we, we switched the data to ensure, you know, intercoder reliability. Um, uh, and and our, that's where our key themes arose from. And that's what, what, what our sort of uh, future um, articles are going to be based on, or sort of out of the themes that arose out of, out of that process. Yeah, that definitely. Um, how would you compare that? I know, I know that CJ, some of your past research has been more of a traditional ethnography. Um, how would you compare doing a project like this to that? Oh, I actually forgot to say, we actually did, I think we did, what, 20 interviews? Well? Oh, okay. 20 did you just contact people on the public sites and ask them if they'd be willing to talk, or how did you go about that? Yep. <laughs> yeah, we did, and I think we, um, we were able to get some of the more frequent posters, which, you know, may have been sort of a self-select thing, but... Um, which actually ended up helping a lot, especially in sort of triangulating the, okay. the data. Right, right, and I think this is where we, because we were actually able to talk to the people who posted posted on these sites, we were able to sort of get a lot of clarification about um, the meanings behind some of the posts. And so this actually speaks to your other question about how does sort of this online analysis speak to um, the experience of doing yeah. offline ethnography and and an offline ethnography it felt like I had a lot more context. I could sort of sit there and watch and, and sort of see people move throughout uh, different mm -hmm. uh, venues and, and sort of get a sense of who they were and what, what different interactions meant to them. But when we were in this online space, it was almost as if we only had a slice that we were able to look at. And some of the, some of the sort of discussions that we saw, you know, arose elsewhere and then migrated to this site. And so we wouldn't necessarily have the context about the beginning of the discussion. And so as Natalie pointed out, you know, talking to these people um, helped us a lot in understanding the context. And so I'd say with, with these online, uh, and I'm not even sure if we want to call it an ethnography, but with these, these, these types of online research projects, to get um, another source of data that might give you more of the context of what you're looking at is really, really helpful. Yeah, and I, I think it's also interesting because in some ways I feel like part of this, you know, the article is about how do you have this community around embodiment in this sort of disembodied space. And in some ways it's sort of, there's a parallel in thinking about the methodological issues of how do you study yeah. bodies when you're studying them online. Right. So I think in, in certain ways we experience maybe some of the uncertainty or anxiety around bodies in these spaces that some of the participants were sort of acting yeah. on. Too. 
Absolutely. Well, that's, that's a great segue into talking more about how these communities actually function and some of that difficulty of uh, determining who is an insider and who is not. So how did people on the sites actually go about establishing authenticity when, like you were saying, it's a disembodied place that is all about embodiment? Well, I mean, I think we talk a lot about the rituals, but I think, you know, some of the more concrete ways that they do this is through displaying their knowledge about these various disorders using things like photographs, checking in with their weight and their statistics, um, you know, talking about various side effects that they are experiencing from these disorders that would um, be characteristic of quote unquote real anorexia. So I think that you know, it's, it's a lot of this, a constant reiteration of, um, you know, sort of talking about their bodies and sharing images of their bodies and using diagnostic categories to frame their bodies online and challenging other people's characteristics, characterizations of their bodies as well. Did, did most of the people who were participating on these sites um, share images of themselves? I wouldn't say most. Um, I, well, there's two ways in which you can sort of share images of yourself, right? So on the one hand, you can share images of yourself in your own avatar or on your own uh, uh, page, on your, your homepage, your social network profile. Um, and, and there most people did share images of themselves. And in fact, some of the groups we observed required that their participants um, post uh, or have pictures of themselves um, either on their own site or as their avatar picture to sort of ensure authenticity. And I would say a lower percentage actually posted pictures of themselves on, um, on the discussion groups. Um, uh, because a minority of discussion group members actually posted on the discussion okay. groups themselves. And, um, and that's true for uh, across the board about discussion groups. Uh, there's a lot more people who are members of them um, than actually yeah. post on them. And so, so, yeah, I'd say that not everyone, or I would say the majority did not sort of actively post pictures of themselves on these particular groups. But one needed to provide pictorial evidence when one was challenged, okay. if that makes sense, right? So if someone challenged your claim to bodily authenticity, you needed to be able to produce a picture. And that didn't even necessarily mean you had to be successful, right? Someone could post a picture of themselves at a weight that they weren't happy with, as long as they then did the interactional work of saying, you know, right now I'm fat and I want to be skinny. Here's my mm -hmm. goal weight, right? So it was really about participating in the discourse less than it uh, I'm sorry, it was really about participating in the discourse more than sort of proving that you were actually skinny. You had to sort of say you wanted to be skinny if you weren't skinny or prove that you were skinny. And that, that was okay. really what So it was more about just knowing how to talk the, or knowing the proper norms right. for talking rather than being able to show a, a very skinny body. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because one of the things we found in these groups, right, was sort of simultaneously incredibly high levels of aggression, right? They were sort of constantly policing these boundaries, um, and that, that's where the one or exit comes in. Um, but they were also really intent on giving one another support in a very sort of kind way, um, kind, sometimes humorous, and some mild, sometimes mildly aggressive way. Um, and so, again, you know, if one used the, if one participated in the discourse correctly, one could elicit all sorts of support, um, and then if one didn't participate in the discourse correctly, that's when one was called out for being anorexic and not, and not truly so, being So what kind of support is provided? Um, what are people, what are these communities offering to the members? I mean, a, a variety of things. I mean, some of the more um, 
some of the things that are more focused on in, in mainstream media are things like dieting tips, tips about hiding your eating disorder. Um, other support, you know, it could surround things that, that theoretically don't have much to do with eating, relationships, etc. cetera. Um, you know, people who are concerned about, or there's often support given when people were showing that ambivalence about should they, you know, get some sort of a help, they don't necessarily want to be doing this, how can they stop all of these things. So a lot of times the support wasn't simply support in developing or maintaining anorexia. It was a lot more broad-based um, than that. But a lot of it had to do with things like managing symptoms, what to eat, what not to eat, um, you know, uh, dealing with family members and friends who are concerned about your eating habits. Were there cases where uh, members did have some sort of serious health crisis as a result of being anorexic? Um, I'm just wondering how other people would respond in those cases. I don't actually remember any. There was the one, we did see one discussion about someone who faked a suicide. Um, yes. That caused a big to do, but I don't think, I mean, there was the, the sort of extra hair growth. Um, Amenorrhea. Yeah. Okay. And but I don't, I don't remember any sort of severe health, health crises. Sometimes um, people would talk about being hospitalized, um, which, which would seem to indicate that there was some sort of health crisis there. But um, it wasn't. How did people respond to that? Was that more of a sign of authenticity, or was there? Did you feel it? Or did people in the community show concern? Or um, the pri- I, actually, I would say the primary way they talked about hospitalization was to give advice about different inpatient okay. programs. Well, I was going to say. Um, but usually we didn't see, we would, we would often see support for whatever the person asked for support for. That is, if somebody, you know, was going into an inpatient program, um, then usually people would say, you know, good luck, right? I hope you get better. Um, and if someone were frustrated because their parents were forcing them into an inpatient program, then people would also say, you know, we're so sorry you're going through this. Parents just don't understand. You know, nobody understands this. And so we'd often, you know, if the person had established themselves as sort of authentically eating disorder and not just sort of um, looking for a diet, we saw some, we usually saw support for whatever it was they were looking for support for. Wouldn't you say that was true, Nat? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that if, I mean, I think one of the things that we heard from a lot of people um, as to why they go to these communities um, especially in our interviews, is that they're simply looking for a non-judgmental okay. space, right, to talk about this. And so I think, you know, obviously there's sort of the aggressive treatment of the exits, et cetera, but when people were really sort of being supportive, like CJ said, they were, they were sort of responsive to what people were asking for. Um, one of the terms that you've brought up a few times, and for people who haven't read the article, uh, could you explain what a, a wanorexic is? Um, well, a wanorexic is basically somebody who um, goes to these sites, participates in the sites, but is sort of flagged as being someone who is not authentically anorexic and who is looking just to lose a few pounds to, you know, get into a prom dress or who is, um, you know, really just more of a conventional okay. dieter. Um, or, or looking for some sort of social acceptance. And, um, you know, they play a really interesting role in 
the community in the sense that they both sort of identifying and pushing them out really reinforces the authenticity of the mm-hmm. inside, right? Is that a term that you saw being used across across the message boards? Was the oh yeah yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it's you can see it anywhere. You could go on Twitter, you'll see it. Uh, Tumblr, um, they're, they're called Wanas or Wanarexics, and it's it's a language that uh, sort of. I, I would say it's it's one of the primary symbols of the community um, across a variety of online spaces. Absolutely. Were you familiar with that term at all before you started doing the research project? No. <laughs> I mean, we weren't familiar with this community really at all. I mean, I have a, you know, uh, Natalie's background is is researching the construction of the obesity epidemic, and um, I have a background in working in an eating disorder and an inpatient eating disorder program. But it was before um, the rise of of the internet as 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 a place where we all hung out. Uh, so really, neither, neither of us had much much experience with this. I, I would hear about it every once in a while from the the kids I studied because mm-hmm. I studied teenagers, okay. but that's it. So uh, to move to some some bigger questions, it seems like a very different vision, what you're presenting or what your research is doing, where you're looking at this community of participants um, and they have some control and they're providing support to each other versus what you're talking about with uh, how the media or academics have looked at this, where it's a more individual, unhealthy girl who might have some reason that she's choosing not to eat. Um, How do these two views uh, coexist with each other? I don't think one means the other's wrong. I mean, I think it's important to also think about the population we're studying. We are studying a largely non-clinical population, which is in part what makes this study unique among studies of eating disorders, is that most eating disorders research has been done on clinical populations. I, I don't think, I think they can coexist. I think that what it simply means is that you can't use earlier characterizations of anorexics based on these inpatient studies to characterize pro-anorexics, right? You can't simply graft on one to the other, and it's a lot more complex. Yeah, I was going to add to that. I mean, I think it's a a great characterization um, in, in that we have sort of a certain understanding of the person who becomes an anorexic. And as Natalie was saying, you know, the community we've studied actually indicates that that those women who engage in these types of practices, and as primarily women, um, are a lot more varied than these characterizations of primarily clinical populations would indicate. And so, you know, obviously we, we are sort of a society that has a fraught relationship around bodies and food. And I think one, one of the, 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 the meeting points for the, these media characterizations and, and what we've studied is that, you know, instead of looking at some sort of pathological individual who has a mental illness, maybe we want to expand this discussion to include sort of um, society-wide discourses about uh, food and bodies and how how our culture actually gives rise to to communities like this rather than pathological okay. individuals. It's, it's really interesting what you were saying about how uh, most of the conclusions about anorexics have been taken from people who have been hospitalized or sent to a clinic. It makes me think of other kind of cases where we take the most extreme example and then generalize out to a whole population. Something like drug use where if you're making all your 
uh, claims based on the people who have been hospitalized for drug use, you won't really have an understanding of people who are doing it in a more um, leisurely manner or something. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's totally a good, a good comparison. And I think like what CJ said, I mean, I think we live in a society that tends to individualize. So we tend to look for causes of eating disorders in individuals and very small groups like families. Or we tend to sort of focus in on and blame one structure, like the media. And I think that both of those things have been sort of part and parcel of how we've thought about anorexia and bulimia and other eating disorders. And both of those approaches really yeah. miss the larger social context. Um, when you were looking at, on the message boards, did you find, was there a lot of discussion of the media? Um, I mean... The media affects literature in general is so inconclusive that <laughs> um, I, I think we, we would be hard pressed to make any claims about what the media sort of makes us do or not do. Um, and so, you know, while there might be sort of public, problematic representations of bodies, et cetera, in mm -hmm. quote unquote the media, <laughs> I, I you know, when you look at the literature, it's just, it, you can't sort of ferret out the effects of the media from, um, from all sorts of other uh, phenomena we are, we are subjected to on a daily basis. Um, and, and I would actually say, again, speaking back to Natalie's research, that that processes of medicalization around body size um, and messages that are coming from doctors are, are incredibly powerful right now in sort of shaping how we think about bodies and body size. Yeah, one of, one of the other things I found really interesting about the article was the, the level of knowledge um, that it seemed like the participants in the community had about how doctors and how the medical community was talking about them. So they didn't seem like passive people who were just not sure what was happening to their bodies. Oh, they, they absolutely do. And any one of them could, um, you know, any one of them could calculate a BMI for you and any one of them could tell you exactly what vitamins and minerals you need to survive and how you can avoid, you know, certain side effects, et cetera. So, so they really are, I mean, I think the internet has brought sort of the democratization of medical information in a broad sense. And I think that these participants have certainly been, you know, take, taking advantage of that. And they, they know in a way what they're dealing with. Now, obviously, this is not to say that people can just sort of manage their eating disorders and there are no harmful effects. But they do, you know, they do display, sometimes it's, seems to be wrong or sometimes they're challenged on it, but they do employ a lot of medical language. And I think speaking back to the media thing, certainly the media effects, like CJ said, are difficult to establish. It's interesting though that sometimes on these sites, people would express frustration about how pro-ANA groups are, were portrayed in the media. Right. right? The, the oversimplistic, the moral panic, the recruiting grounds of eating disorders. So what, what are your other plans for, um, for this research project, considering you gathered so much data and have all these interviews that you conducted? Um, what else will you be doing with it? Right. Well, we have a wealth of data, which we're incredibly lucky to have. Uh, and so we're planning to actually roll out a series of articles um, from the data. So this one was about authenticity, uh, this, this particular uh, piece. And then we have um, a piece on aggression, uh, aggression uh, it, that, that sort of takes a little bit about what we talked about in this particular piece and it expands on different kinds of aggression that you'll see in these sites. Um, so 
we also have a piece on the ambivalence uh, that manifests itself on these sites, which again really challenges these media characterizations. Um, what do you mean by ambivalence? Ambivalence, what? right? That's a great question. Right. Yeah. So we actually see that the the participants on these sites have a variety of dispositions towards their disorders. Um, so some participants actually are quite open about saying they want they they see this as a disorder and they want to recover from it. Other participants um, are very uh, assertive in, in saying that they see this as a lifestyle choice and there's nothing to recover from. It's not a disease. Um, and we'll see actually the same participant, the same person posting along both of those lines. Um, and so really sort of teasing out the ambivalence that can characterize these sites in which they sort of say both things, right? That, that it's both a disease and a lifestyle choice and something they want to recover from and it's something that they don't want to recover from. Um, is that is that clear? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I... Did you want to add? Yeah. No, I was going to ask if you want to add to it. Oh, oh, yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, that that is, again, one of those findings that really took time. It was one of the things that sort of came to us later in the process. Like, what we're not, you know, we're sort of frustrated that it's not all this pro-Anna, pro-Anna, pro-Anna. It's actually, you know, some fairly complex feelings and thoughts being, you know, and analysis being shared out there about eating disorders. And so I think, you know, if, if some of the goals of this is to sort of really think about how we can address eating disorders as a social problem, then really understanding that we're not dealing with something cut and dried with this community out there that seems to be getting a lot of, of media that portrays it as very cut and dried is, is really, I think, important to understand this ambivalence. Are those, uh, so are these articles that you're already in the process of writing? They've, yeah, they've been written and just need some tweaking and revisions. <laughs> okay. Hopefully we'll see them in, you know, the next, you know, two years. Who knows how yeah. long it's going to take. I said they're finding homes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but also coming out on sort of the culture of, of the pro-Anna world. So really just outlining the contours of, of the sort of, um, symbolic uh, uh, communication they use and, and uh, the sort of norms and values that, that we see in, in these communities. So yeah, so we have three more, three more pieces that should be on the way. So, I suppose that's the wonderful thing about academia. People can listen to the podcast and get excited about the topic. They can read the article on Body and Society and enjoy it. And then they only have to wait another two or three <laughs> years before they get to hear the rest of the story. Oh, slow moving academia, yeah. <laughs> Well, this seems like an appropriate stopping point, so thank you again both for joining us. And to all the listeners out there, if it's possible, go and pick up the most recent issue of Body and Society and make sure to check out Natalie Buero and CJ Pasco's article. You won't regret it. Well, thank you for having us. This was really fun. We had a good time. Yeah.